Hello and welcome to EM Talk. I'm your host, Judson Smith. EM Talk is an education podcast sponsored by Axon Education. Axon is a company devoted to setting a new standard for EMS and healthcare training. All of Axon's programs are delivered online and are designed for people trying to learn in the most efficient way possible. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the use of CPAP in the pre-hospital setting. Respiratory and airway management is a common challenge in the world of EMS and healthcare in general, for that matter. We could make a whole podcast simply about airway management alone. Today, I want to focus on the various ways in which CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure can be beneficial or even sometimes harmful in our emergency response field. CPAP has been used in EMS for several years now, but is becoming more and more popular as a treatment for the prevention of situations which are deteriorating rapidly. Before we get started today, I want to introduce our guest, Kenny Dennis. Kenny is a friend and colleague of mine going on six years now. Kenny's a paramedic with a good deal of experience in the use of CPAP in the pre-hospital setting, and I think he'll be able to help us understand the different intricacies of the topic. Welcome, Kenny, and why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your history and work in EMS. Okay, well, I've been, I've been in EMS for about six years, graduated from TSCC, got my licensed paramedic there, worked with numerous services around here, county with Haskell, Clyde, Winters, South Taylor County, and here at MetroCare. Um, the education, I've continuously educated myself on everything after after being done with school because if you stop educating, you're just pretty much done in this field. Uh, as far as future goals, I'm looking at possibly getting my nursing degree at some point whenever I can find some downtime from here, which hardly ever. <laughs> well, there's, there's not much downtime in EMS at all, uh, especially when you're a supervisor and constantly trying to improve your service. Uh, Kenny has downplayed himself a bit. Uh, he's done a, a good a good deal of uh, improvement to the service that he works for and he's he's always looking for the way to make EMS more professional and a, and a better environment. So why uh, why the goal of going into nursing? What makes you interested in nursing? I would like to travel and there's really no travel field in the paramedic field. So once my kids are grown and out of the house and it's just me and my wife figure be a travel nurse you know it's just it steps up on my education as well because there's things that they know that we have no idea about absolutely you know the blood draws and stuff they don't teach us that in school now you get into the pharmacology and it's like a totally different oh yeah world. it's a different yeah. ball game so you know it's going to educate it's going to beef up my education as well and then uh, whatever i learn from the paramedic field i can always take to the er and it just make me that much better of an rn at that point that's cool that's really uh a good way to, to change it up and take what you learned from EMS and give it to an ER. It's a benefit for sure. All the, all the, the RNs that I know that were paramedics are uh, really good in those emergency situations. So that's really cool. Absolutely. Okay, so, um, so Kenny, we're going to start real basic, and we're going to distinguish between respiratory distress, respiratory failure, and then kind of build up from there and see see where it takes us in this CPAP discussion. So what is respiratory distress? Give me an example of respiratory distress. Uh, the, the one main respiratory distress example that I can come up with is, is one is just having a hard time breathing in general, whether it be from asthma or from their 
uh, COPD exacerbation from allergies or weather, whatever caused that issue with them. So they're in slight distress. They may not be having an easy time breathing. Their O2 sets are probably still about 90%, 91%, whatever they're normally at. They're just having that hard time breathing. They don't feel like they're getting enough air movement going. And those patients, normally we can give them a medication such as albuterol, atrovan, so on and so forth to, to help facilitate that for them. Um, these patients may or may not be in a tripod position at that point. We've just, we just caught it. Uh, they're not using their accessory muscle usage, nothing like that. So they're just having that hard time breathing, don't feel like they can breathe that well. Awesome. Good, good description. And that's, I mean, that's a respiratory patient we see all the time. Oh, Every day we get somebody like that, mm-hmm. especially, I mean, as the weather changes and oh, things West like Texas that. Weather, it's horrible. Yeah. In West Texas, uh, I would say respiratory emergencies and falls are probably like our number one yeah, patient. I agree. So, uh, and it, and it's usually not a severe respiratory call. It's just general distress. Like you're, like you're talking about, I give them a little bit of O2, maybe some albuterol and we're back to normal and on our way back to healthy. Um, so what a lot of people get confused about, and you'll see this with uh, with new EMTs all the time, they don't understand the difference between distress and then failure. So what is respiratory failure? Uh, respiratory failure, these patients have already progressed to the tripod position. Uh, they have the refractory muscle usage. They may have become lethargic, and they're just breathing abnormally, whether it be abnormally fast or they progress down to where it's just a slow breathing because they're they finally their body's finally given up on them and they can't do it themselves anymore. Uh, these patients will have little to no air movement and decreased lung sounds or rails noted if they are such as a CHF patient. Um, their capnography, the the numbers between thirty five and forty five is what we're shooting for. These patients will probably have a number way up in the fifties or sixties and we have to start working that down at that point. Okay, so uh so if we're talking about COPD, what's something that's going to exacerbate uh, COPD? Uh, well, a lot of around here is weather for us. Uh, we'll get the, the wind blowing in, the dust, and the dust carries all kinds of stuff. And so once once we have weather coming in like that, we'll have a front come in, then that's when we start having the really bad the weather in West Texas is a factor. I mean, the weather anywhere is probably a factor with a COPD patient. Um, with respiratory, your body develops that condition in a certain climate, and then when you remove yourself from that climate, it either gets worse or better. Um, a lot of people, they'll, they'll go from a, you know, a real dry climate with lots of dust like Texas, and then they'll move to you know, Hawaii or Colorado, and their condition gets better because they're removing one of those factors from it. Right, that's what I was going to say. In Colorado, we've had some people come down from Colorado. They come down from the mountains, and now that the change in the pressure is going to affect it as well because they went from one one uh, uh, altitude down to another altitude, and then you'll go down the coast and you'll have the same situation. Like you said, the you know people from Arizona with that hot, hot weather that they have there, and then they go up to Colorado, it's going to be a lot different for them. It might be easier for them to breathe once they get up into a cooler climate for them. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you mentioned you mentioned the word pressure, and that's going to come into play here in a minute for sure when we start talking about CPAP because that's what it's all about is that pressure, uh, positive, negative pressures. Um, it all factors in, so that's that's an important word for us to, to keep in mind all the time with respiratory. So, so let's start 
basic treatment before we get to CPAP. Um, you mentioned oxygen and albuterol for that respiratory distress patient. Um, if I've got a respiratory failure patient, uh, give me an example of a time that, that you you started just basic treatment level to get to try to reverse that problem. Well, a lot of these patients are already going to be on oxygen. Most of the time, they're going to be on nasocanula with a 50-foot hose running to the other side of the house or something like that. They're going to probably be on their two or four liters or whatever they're normally on. So when you, you go in, you get their initial O2 set, and they're going to be in the 80s. Uh, so at that point, we still have to figure out what we're going to do with the patient. So we'll either turn up theirs, and we'll, we'll go from their two to we'll go ahead and go up to six. We'll just hit them on that nasal cannula and start blowing their nose off and doing what we have to do to, to facilitate that oxygen. Uh, then we'll throw them on the, the capnography so that we can get that reading, get that waveform. And, uh, and then from there, we'll, we'll decide, okay, do we need to titrate up or what we need to do. So a lot of my patients, they'll end up receiving four liters on the, the capnography or six, depending on what the situation is. And then uh, at that point, if we're able to, then we'll just progress them to the non-rebreather. The, uh, the non-rebreather, we'll just titrate to effect. If they're, if they're doing good at, say, 90% at 10 liters and they're on COPD and they're a COPD patient, that's probably where we want to just try to keep them at. Uh, we'll get the lung sounds, and then we'll start treating them with uh, the albuterol, the adjuvant, or the Zopinex. My personal opinion, I like using Zopinex and adjuvant because it seems to work a lot better for me. I don't know why, but it does. So uh, that, that's something to, to pause on right there. Um, what's the difference in those medications? I mean, why, why use one as opposed to the other? Well, one of the there, there's a couple different reasons for me. The albuterol, is a lot of people have albuterol inhalers at home, so they'll start using that before we even get there. Yeah, I've taken so many puffs off my inhaler, or I've already taken so many of my uh, small volume nebulizer albuterol, and it's not working for me. Well, we're going to move you to a Zopinex at this point. And then a change of medication sometimes helps out and facilitates that. Uh, the Atrovant helps out tremendously as well when we combine it with the, with the Zopinex and it can help dry out the mucus and whatever production that they have because a lot of times they're, they're coughing up a bunch of stuff or whatever. Um, so, and then the other effect of it is albuterol versus Zopinex. Albuterol can raise your heart rate. Well, if the patient's already in respiratory distress or respiratory failure, their heart rate's already going to be through the roof. So why make that even worse? We don't want to throw them into cardiac arrest. So let's just go ahead and put them on something that's not going to affect their heart rate as much. So that's what that's what we'll give them the Zopinex. So uh, what you'll what you'll get out there all the time is you'll get these these cookbook practitioners who, when they were in school, they learned, oh, they're having breathing difficulty. Let's throw some albuterol at them. And obviously, you have to consider the situation. You have to consider that you've got a person using the albuterol all the time. They just took like 14 puffs of it and it did nothing. They're already in distress, so they're, you know, like you said, they're anxious. They're, their heart rate's going. Their body's trying to compensate. And a lot of times, these, these cookbook practitioners will just just go by the book and they'll end up doing more harm than good right and then and that's another thing i mean I, it may be going too far for on this one but you you have to look at the cardiac issue and i, I don't know how many times i ran on patients that were having a respiratory issue that ended up being an actual cardiac issue of afib rvr patients you know that they're, they're saying they're having a hard time breathing well their heart's not beating like it's supposed to be so it's causing more harm or causing more complications down the line so you'd want to put the patient on the cardiac monitor and start off from there as well and see if are they in rvr is that what's causing the problem so 
I've had it where I've, I've pulled on scene and, you know, a first responder will have them on albuterol and an adjuvant when the patient really needed cardizem to treat their heart. And that's what the problem was. And you give them the cardizem, now they can breathe easier. Everything's turning out great for them. You just put them on their small, their, their normal O2 and just roll with them at that point. And it's not really a lung issue. It's the heart issue. Well, and, and what you're talking about here is just basic assessment. You're talking about actually assessing the patient before treating them. And that's something that, that EMS has tried to, to grow in their ability to do and their emphasis of it. They've, you know, we've gone from, you know, here's treatment, go, go, go. And uh, instead, now we're actually looking at the patient and treating the patient. So it's it's not too far. It's, it's perfect. Like, no, and, we need to do that. And oxygen is always your first line. A little oxygen is not going to hurt anybody. I mean, you just throw them on there to get them going on the oxygen and then start doing your lung sounds, put them on the cardiac monitor, and just start developing your assessment from that point forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. So, uh... So there's our first-line treatments. That's, a, I mean, a very brief description of something that's uh, very complicated, um, which, like I said, we could do a whole podcast just on any respiratory issue. So let's, let's get to where we're, where we're going with this. Let's, what is the general purpose of CPAP? What do we do with CPAP? Uh, well, the general purpose is to relieve the workload on the patient's breathing, and in return, and in return you're, you're helping with the heart as well. So the CPAP expands the alveoli to help facilitate the exchange of oxygen. Right. So it's, I mean, it's not, not all that complicated, the, this, this treatment we're talking about. But you see a lot of people that are, are nervous to use it or underutilize it. And then you see some people that overutilize it because they don't understand the purpose of it. And it's really just a, a very simple process that we're, that we're doing here, very simple treatment. Um, that can change a patient from, you know, going down the drain to, to back to normal in a matter of minutes. Um, yeah, and then you have patients who fight the situation, having a mask on their face. You know, they, they're already scared. They're already worked up. And then you go and put something on their face, and it's just blowing air, and it's real loud, and it, and it just it scares them even more at that point. So uh, then in return, sometimes it, it can scare the new the new medic or the new EMT that's putting this stuff on that, okay, well, if, if this is not working for you, but you've got to coach these patients in, into all this stuff, and you got to tell yourself you know what you're doing, this is your education, and you've learned it. So the, the devices of CPAPs, there's so many different ones out there. I think we've changed our device to CPAPs three or four times since I've been here. So that's another complicated factor for some people because they may go from one service of using this kind of CPAP to go into another service of using another kind of CPAP. Whereas now we just put them on the oxygen and we turn it up to a certain number and it gives them that pressure, whether it be the 5, the 7.5, or 10, where the other ones you dial it yourself. You'll actually start turning the dial to 5 or 7.5 to 10. And so it's, there's education in there that these people are going to have to learn that there's more than just one kind of CPAP out there to, to use. Right, and, and that itself shows us that the medical community as a whole has decided that CPAP is a very important treatment and something that pre-hospital should be doing. Because all they, most of the devices out there that they've made have been for the pre-hospital setting. They've changed it and changed it to make it more user-friendly, I guess is the best term, uh, so that 
EMS providers aren't so scared to do it because it, it really can make the difference. It can keep us from having to go to the extreme. Yeah, absolutely. So and the only the the biggest thing that I've seen so far with all the new changes on the CPAP, the hardest thing really so far is to drop a natural on a patient who has CPAP on. It's not that hard, but you still have to remove the mask or you have to lift it up or whatever to drop the natural. Now, if they can figure out a way to facilitate that in a different way, that'd be great. Uh, but, you know, they got the, the newer ones are coming out with ways of putting in the inline neb for them, and they're actually coming with the nebulizer treatment and stuff like that. So it's expanding tremendously for CPAP. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, even I've only been in this for a short while and it's changed from day, day one. I mean, even from last year, it's changed how we're using CPAP and what types of devices are out there. So it, it's an ever changing treatment. So give me, give me a call that you've been on where you went from this person needs oxygen to, I got to use CPAP to stop this person from dying. Oh, man, there's a lot of them. Uh, really, the most ones I have is patients who are breathing rapidly, you know, most time over 40 or, or something like that. Times a minute when your regular is, is 12 to 20, and they're just breathing way over that number. Uh, a lot of these patients will have rails in their lower lobes, which is the, the fluid buildup from CHF complications. Um, you know, make sure that you're checking the anterior and posterior, and this patient in particular they had it in both ways and then decreased more so in the in the anterior, but they've been laying down. So when I set them up and listen to their posterior, I can hear it even more because where does all the fluid go when you're laying down? Right. So you, you hear it tremendously down in there. So a patient was was in their lower 80s on their normal nasal cannula at four liters. Um, so really we could put the patient on the non-rebreather which which that's what happens with those we progress into to the CPAP so we we put them on that and then we start getting everything ready because it, it does take a whole hot minute to get the the CPAP hooked up like you need it to and if you have the newer ones like what we have it's easier for uh, one person to do you don't have to have two people to put up the CPAP but uh, so we, we applied the CPAP in order to to help push off the fluids off this patient and this patient also got a nitroglycerin to help expand and to open everything up and just to, to push out the fluid because that's essentially what we're trying to do everything's just getting flooded out so so you're you're using the nitro not as a as a cardiac treatment or a blood pressure treatment no, you're using just, the nitro to open it up so that the fluid can escape right because it's still it's all it, it at that point, this patient, probably their blood pressure is probably through the roof. And most of them are. I mean, you're going to find some that are going to be really low. But, you know, their blood pressure is probably going to be 180 over 110. The, this patient, she was she was fighting the CPAP. She didn't want it on. She was scared. Uh, she was she was leaning towards the, um, uh, the failure part more than the stress because a lot of these patients, again, they wait and wait and wait until they can't anymore. Then they call us, and that's when we have the complication. So she was fighting it, and I had to coach her through it. We all coached her through listen, listening to us about how to breathe, and eventually she started calming down. The breathing rate started dropping. Uh, her blood pressure came down because of the pressure that we're putting on the, on the aorta as well, and we'll talk about that. And um, her SATs came up into the 90s, which we're not worried about it getting over 94 because this patient's already satting low as right. it is. So we're just keeping it at a number that, that we're comfortable with and that the patient's comfortable with. And uh, so everything slowly started process to, 
to progress to that point, but it, it takes a minute. It, you, you won't just automatically see the, the, uh, the effects of it right when you put it on. And so it, it may take 10 minutes. So by the time we get to the hospital with this patient, everything's starting to look up. The capnography reading's starting to lower down where it's supposed to be. The waveform's starting to look a lot better. And uh, lung sounds are starting to clear up because we're pushing all that fluid out at that point as well. So you said a few things that are, that are interesting to me, and, and I want to touch on all of them. Um, one, uh, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier about not being cookbook, uh, the nitro. I mean, that's that's a, a unique thought. I mean, it's smart, but it's a different thought than most providers have initially when they're thinking, you know, I'm treating my respiratory patient. Let's throw a nitro in there because you're, you're using nitro for what it should be used for anyways. It's just a medication, and you're just thinking of how it responds to the body or right. how the body responds to it. So that's, that's excellent. Um, so that proves that point that you got to think of your patient as opposed to, you know, what your, what your book says. Um, and then you also mentioned the, the word coaching and you talked about that earlier. And that's something that, that the new provider doesn't learn at all. And so they're out there in the field, like you said, and they're scared and they're watching their patient and they're like, Oh my gosh, they don't like this. What do I do? Um, you're talking about being there emotionally for the patient as well and yeah. saying, you know, you're, em you're empathizing with them. This well, is scary. How do I help them through this? Yeah, and it falls back on your education too. You know that you're going to put the CPAP on this patient for this reason. You know what it's fixing to do for that patient. So you know in your heart and from your in, in your mind that if I keep this patient on it, eventually it's fixing to start working. It's not going to work rapidly, but that's where you have to take your education. You have to stay calm. And you have to keep your composure and just coach them through it. Say, so just keep breathing. Keep taking some breaths for me. This is going to eventually work. Just keep going with it. And and most of the time, it works. Now, if it doesn't, they're already downhill, and you're fixing to be looking at doing something else anyways. <laughs> right. And and it does, you know, sometimes CPAP doesn't work, and that's that's where we get. Sometimes it's, it's just too late for the CPAP. Um, so uh, you mentioned uh capnography so uh we know the numbers everybody's aware 35 45 that's that's our normal range um but how often do you get the patient that's in that perfect range yeah i mean well the perfect range patients are going to be the ones who are just like me and you are just sitting here not yeah. having any kind of asthma you know or anything like that so that's going to be your perfect range patients uh with your difficulty breathing patients or your respiratory patients i'll say uh, a lot of times they're going to be in the higher end of, of that 45, or if they're having other kind of complications, they may be in the lower end of it. So you have to figure out how, which way you're going to go with that patient. Uh, so the biggest, I mean, just the assessment is so big. You, you can't just see difficulty breathing and think respiratory and just dive into that because you have to come up with your differential diagnosis with everything that you do. Yeah. And you know, uh, we, we touch on that acid-base balance uh, material in, in all advanced and medic programs. You get there at some point, and everybody gets there, and they're like, wow, this is a lot of information. And this is the reality of it is this is where you use it. You look at it, and you're like, when would I ever care about this? <laughs> and then you're like, oh, crap, I got this CPAP patient. That sounds and, like patho class all over again. Yeah, and you're just like, this makes sense now. Now I've, I've got this person breathing 40 times a minute. What's their body doing? How is it responding? And you're thinking of all these ways you can fix the problem, and you're like, wait a second. Uh, 
each one, each treatment I do is going to start to reverse the issue. And so, uh, and CPAP can be a great way to do that. It's, you know, it's, it's our way of slowing the breathing down, getting, getting more uh, gas exchange in the alveoli, which, which brings us to the pathological part of it. You know, what are, what are we doing pathologically when we're, when we're giving somebody a CPAP, when we're putting CPAP on somebody, what are we, what are we achieving? Well, so the, the numbers that you put on the CPAP, they have five, seven and a half, ten. Some of them even go higher than that. But the, what it is is the pressure that you're putting on, the back pressure that you're putting onto the patient. So every time that they breathe out, that CPAP is pushing constant air in. So in return, that's pushing that all the way down to the lungs, to the bottom of them where your alveoli are going to be. And these alveoli are already either drowned out or they're just not expanded out like they're supposed to be. So that positive pressure... Uh, you can look at it as like a balloon. So when you blow into a balloon, you're going to expand that balloon out. Okay, so that what that's what the CPAP is doing is it's putting that positive pressure back in and it's expanding the alveoli to help with that gas exchange, which in turn eventually is going to help facilitate their breathing, and then they're going to start you're you're going to start seeing all the the numbers and everything else with the patient at that point. But that's essentially what it's doing. It's just opening up that alveoli, opening up your lungs, and helping them breathe a little bit better. And if you purse your lips, you'll see some people that purse their lips when they're having having difficulty breathing or they're in distress. They're in that tripod position. And when they're breathing, they're, they're pursing their lips like they're sucking through a straw. Well, that's your body's own mechanism of CPAP, essentially, because it is creating that that positive pressure back so that it helps it helps expand the alveoli that's your body's way of doing it and so when your body can't do it anymore that's where we come in at with CPAP absolutely and that's a very very easy way to think about how CPAP works it doesn't have to be more complicated than that if you make it more complicated you're gonna be afraid to use it if you just start sitting there thinking of every little little piece of it and that's that's essentially what it I mean that's what it's doing that's what it's there for and when you do that it, it can very easily reverse the problem um, the the real thing here is we've talked about some of the indications for for using CPAP you know um, obviously they're they're unable to compensate anymore and that's why we're using CPAP and, and you know understanding the basis for that is easy but when should I not use CPAP when it when am I gonna do harm by using CPAP uh, well there's, there's a few things one uh, the patients who are lethargic, unable to keep their head up, so they're not able to, if they, if you have them sitting on the stretcher and their head's going down, you're already kinking off their airway as it is, so they're not able to take the breaths like they're supposed to be, you're not going to be able to coach them, and all these patients that you put on CPAP need to be coached through the CPAP situation of how to breathe and everything, just like an anxiety patient, so... Um, if, if they're already lethargic, you just need to go past that and you're looking at doing a BVM and that's another thing where we can use the PEEP, which that's what the CPAP is using. That's the five, the seven and a half and the 10. So you can put a PEEP valve on the BVM and essentially do the same thing for the patient, uh, with the BVM rather than the CPAP. Um, so those patients who are lethargic, you wouldn't want to use it on them because they're already, they've already progressed too far. Uh, traumas to the to the chest wall. You don't want to use a, use a CPAP on that because it could cause further barrel trauma to the to the patient, and now they're not going to be able to breathe. Uh, kids under man, I can't remember the age of the kids. I, I think it was uh, I 
think it was under the age of 10, but... Was it 10? I, I couldn't hear if so. it was 15 or 10. So I'll have to look that one back up. Yeah, again. yeah. But it's not how fresh often in my do you use CPAP on children is very, very rare. Yeah, but yeah. you wouldn't want to use it on a small-chested person because it can cause further complications. Just like if you're bagging somebody, you can't push so much because you're going to cause their, their lungs to overinflate. Um, see, patient, the elderly, uh, you know, these old ladies, old men who are just, the, you can see all their lungs and their chest is already out. And you can cause further complication with it as well with them. Not as bad, but you just going to have to keep an eye on that. One big thing that a lot of people don't pay attention to is the blood pressure on these patients. You'll have somebody who has a blood pressure of 100 over 60, and you're like, oh, that's a good blood pressure. And you'll put them on CPAP, and now their blood pressure is 80 over 40. Well, that's because you put all that pressure in the aorta, and it's not letting enough uh, blood to get back into the heart, and that cause more problems. Because in so, reality, their heart was already working double time to right. try to compensate. Yeah, it's already, yeah, you're, you're, now you're making it even worse for the heart. So with those types of patients, you can just start giving them fluid. If they're not having a fluid overload as it is, but you can start giving them fluid and then start bringing their blood pressure back up, and then you can put them on the CPAP and go from that point forward. Those are the main things that I can think of that you uh, wouldn't want to use CPAP. And, and yeah, and I, I mean... And you're always going to have that situation where there's a, you know, there's, it feels like there's a gray area because you're like, man, they could really benefit, but this doesn't play right with me. And uh, it's just important to, to think of the whole patient, not just the, uh, you know, immediate life threats are, are something you always have to focus on. But sometimes we, we miss pieces because we're unwilling to just look at the patient as a whole. Yeah, and if, if CPAP is something that you feel you walk into the house and the patient's having respiratory problems, if, if you want to dive right into respiratory and put the patient on CPAP and after you already got a blood pressure and you check that and it's fine and all the other uh, contraindications are out the window, then that's fine. Just make sure that you're doing your due diligence and making sure that it's not a heart problem that's causing that. Uh, and Because you can always take the CPAP off. Once it's on, it can come off if it needs to come back off. But if you want to start your assessment or start your treatment that way, then that would be fine. Just watch what medications you're given to see if it's the heart or not. Absolutely. And, you know, none of these, well, not none, but most of the treatments that we're providing, with the exception of a medication that we push through an IV or IM or something, um, we're, it's, we can always stop it. We can always just say, hey, this isn't right, this isn't working, let's try something different. Reboot and, you know, go after it a different direction. And uh, I think uh, we always get this feeling like, oh, I started this, and I better better just keep going. And uh, sometimes that's detrimental to our patient. We're just, you know, we're so nervous about what's happening, we, we forget that we could always try something different. Yes, yeah, and the new medics or, or new EMTs, they run into that situation quite a bit. They don't realize that they can just, they can shift over. Just remember, you can't take medications away, no, no. but you can take outward things like the, the CPAP, the non-rebreather, the BVM. You can take those things away from the patient if you don't think that they need it at that point. Absolutely. So, uh, so... We kind of we've talked on when we use CPAP and we don't use CPAP, what it does, how the outcome can change because of CPAP. So, uh, where do you see CPAP going in the future? I mean, you know, it's obviously increase of use. Uh, there's probably some new uses we haven't even thought of. Yeah, I'm um, sure. 
But uh, where do you see it going? I mean, like, what are some ideas you have of where it could go? Man, I, I really don't know. I just, I've been thinking about that that question, and I really don't know where, I mean, the increased usage is, is one of the biggest things because when I first started working here six years ago, we didn't hardly use them at all. And hence having the, the crazy CPAPs, it takes two people to put it on, and you have to dial it in yourself and everything else. So I, I know that they are, being the, the CPAP machines themselves or the CPAP masks are they're being made better and a lot easier for for paramedics to use out in the field um, I'm sure at a certain point they're going to figure out how to make the CPAP to where you can adjust it to where it's not not harming your blood pressure as much uh, but I really don't know I haven't read a whole lot into where they're going with with the research on CPAP yeah, it's in, and when you look it up, I read several articles about about what they want to do with CPAP, what the theories are on, on you know where they're headed with it, and they just, it, it's just like anything else in the healthcare world, they they just touch the the basis of what it could be used for, and and you're already, I mean, some of the things you're mentioning are, are things that I never thought of when we're using CPAP. And so that's how these things change is people being willing to, to say, okay, this makes sense. There's science behind it. There's, there's obviously, uh, there's, there's evidence-based, uh, medicine here and, and we've proven that these things work. And so it's just things like that are what's going to change the game for, for EMS, just making decisions based on what you know works and what you have seen out there in the field and uh, it, it's, it's just a game changer, and I'm excited about where it could go. So, uh, you know, Kenny, we're, we're excited that we got to, to talk to you here on, uh, on this one about CPAP. We definitely want to have you back again sometime to talk about something in the future. Um, like I said, I've worked with Kenny. Uh, he was actually one of my preceptors whenever I was going through medic school, so I've, I've learned from Kenny. He used to put me on a truck and wouldn't let me start an IV on scene. I had to start it in route, and he would count down the whole time I was doing it just to get me in that habit of saying, look, you only you need to always be thinking what's next for this patient. You know, How do I move forward with this patient? And if you're sitting on scene focusing on that one treatment, uh, you're going to miss the other stuff. And, and I think it's evident in the way that he's talked about CPAP that that's how he thinks all the time is, What's best for my patient? What's next for my patient? How do I have the best outcome for my patient? So, Kenny, thanks thanks for being here with us I today. I enjoyed it, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, and we, we love it. Like I said, we'll be back again with Kenny some other time. We're glad that you chose to join us today. If you're interested in EMS or EMS education, including gaining your EMT certification, advanced EMT certification, or just working to increase your knowledge, please feel free to contact us at supportedaxoneducation.com. In life, you're never done learning. Knowledge is vital in EMS. It's life or death. I'm your host, Judd Smith, and we'll see you next time on EM Talk.